This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Your radio doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on your radio doctor. Always consult your own physician. Talk Radio 1210, WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. A radio.com station. Live from the Malamut and Associates Law Studios, it's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Sunday morning at 10. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. I'm not declaring a public health emergency of international concern today. As it was yesterday, the emergency committee was divided over whether the outbreak of novel coronavirus represents a fake or not. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. And a good Sunday morning, everyone, and welcome in to Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. As we come to you on a Sunday morning, this is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Doc, good morning. Thank you, Joe. Good morning to you, and welcome back to our listeners to another very special show. As we continue into the month of March, we continue to learn about colon cancer. We've talked about prevention, screening, spent some time discussing the latest bowel prep, and then we heard about the new standard of care. If you have a large colon polyp, some of the time it can be removed by an advanced endoscopist or one who's trained to remove polyps with the scope so you don't have to go to surgery. Today, our guests include, from Jefferson University Hospital, Dr. Gerald Eisenberg, who's a professor of surgery, and he's practiced colorectal surgery for over 30 years. He's recognized nationally and served as the vice president of the American College of Colon and Rectal Surgeons, and he's well-respected by our university peers, we're colleagues at Jeff, as the president of our medical staff. We'll also be joined by Pennsylvania State Representative, the Honorable Maria Donatucci, who serves the county of Philadelphia, and she is a true champion of colorectal cancer prevention, and screening. So welcome, Dr. Eisenberg. We'll start with you. Thank you. And if you were here to listen last week, we talked about advances in colonoscopy and improved techniques that now enable us to remove large polyps that used to require surgery. In fact, as I mentioned, it's now the standard of care because we're able to remove the growth without inherent risks of surgery. And as always, with any cancer, our goal is complete removal of a tumor and everything in its wake, any blood vessels or lymphatic drainage that are involved so we can avoid spread into the bloodstream or the lymphatic system. So we turn to you, our first guest, Dr. Eisenberg. When do you recommend surgery for colon cancer? So sometimes either a large polyp can't be removed with the scope um, or it's already a cancer. And in those instances, we recommend to have surgery. And when we look at this uh, mass that's about to be removed, if you have a family history, that puts it in a different category, yes? Sure. A family history brings other issues um, in terms of how much of the colon you're going to remove and other things that can be associated with that family history. So one of the things we like to do as a team, I as a GI doctor and Dr. Eisenberg as a GI surgeon will advise that patient to see a genetic counselor first because it really could impact their whole treatment plan, but especially their surgery, as you say, it may be more than just 
Absolutely. It may, we may take out more of the colon instead of just a one small segment. We may end up taking out most of the colon. But honestly, that's a, a very select group of people, and, sure. and most people don't, don't fall into that. They have a not family-related uh, colon cancer, and we would just take out a prescribed segment uh, related to where that tumor is. Mm-hmm. In fact, 75 to 80 percent of cases are sporadic, meaning they just pop out of nowhere and there is no family history. And that's why if you do uh, nothing else, learn your family history because it could change how we begin your screening, etc. So it's a staged approach. We remove the tumor. Right. We go in and there are different, different ways of, of taking the tumor out, but depending upon exactly where it is, we usually take out about a foot of the colon. And it's not because the tumor is that size. Most of the time, they're one to two or three inches in size. But we need to take out the blood vessels and the lymph nodes that drain the tumor. And in order to do that, we have to take out a larger segment. So frequently, it's about a foot of the colon. And of course, if you're in there and you visualize any spread, which we call metastases, or the adjective metastatic disease, you have to address that while you're there as well. Sure. I mean, in that instance, um, we would at least biopsy the metastatic disease, or if there are large lymph nodes, we try to get them out. But often with our our preoperative techniques, uh, the scans that we do, um, we we know about that before we even get there and can plan ahead for that uh, instance. So before you would do anything, you have the staging uh, process. So we look at the patient. We know what we can from the colonoscopy and the biopsies. If there's a family history, we take care of that. We consider that. We also do what's called a blood test called the CEA level. Right. The CEA level is a test that essentially looks for cancer cells in the blood. And we do it at the, at the time of diagnosis to get a baseline. It's more important that we use that to follow the patient over months and years after we take the tumor out. And um, if it's high when we start with the patient, we would expect it to go down after the surgery. And then we would watch it for any rises over the next five to 10 years, which might indicate a return of the cancer. So it's a, often a good way to measure that. So it's not a test we can use to diagnose if we have 100 people and say, hey, let's Let's do this blood test on everybody and see if there's colon cancer. It's more, as you say, in follow-up, if we move a colon cancer and that level drops precipitously, that's actually a good sign that they might have a, a longer uh, disease-free period, yes? Yes, that's very good. But as you said, it's not a screening test. We haven't found that yet. One day we will have that, but not quite yet. And so along with the staging, as you mentioned, we want to see if we can visualize any metastatic or spread disease to the chest or abdomen, so we'll do... Right, we'll get a CAT scan of the chest, abdomen, and pelvis routinely in someone with colon cancer, and we'll see, has it spread most commonly if it's spread, it's either to the lymph nodes or to the liver, but then a small percentage, it also goes to the chest, so we have to look for that because that helps us plan uh, that patient's treatment. Sure, and when we do colonoscopy exams, Uh, let's say, even if you do the colonoscopy, Dr. Uh, Eisenberg does do colonoscopy as well, if you find a lesion that ends up needing needing surgery, but you've removed most of it, gee whiz, when you get into the surgery, how do you find it? 
So it's really important that we inject some India ink. It's a tattoo uh, of the lesion, and that helps us look during surgery um, because you're putting the tattoo on the inside of the colon, but when we get to surgery, we're looking at the outside, and we can see that tattoo, and that guides us to take out the correct part of the colon. It's so simple but so effective. When we're doing colonoscopy, if we see a lesion that we know might be hard for the surgeon to find, tiny needle inject right under the surface in the lining of the colon, and that, that India black ink shows all the way through to the outer surface so the uh, surgeon can find it. So but you, I'm sorry. You can't, you can't choose the design of the tattoo. I just no, want to say that. It can't be a heart with mom in the middle or anything <laughs> no, like no. that. So there is really a team approach too because Dr. Eisenberg has, will share that this is the longest running tumor board. That's a collection, a multidisciplinary uh, committee that meets. So the, the surgeon. We have the surgeon. We have the pathologist, the radiologist, genetics counselor, oncologist, uh, radiation therapist, a radiation oncologist. So we've, we meet weekly to discuss all of our colon or rectal cancer cases, and we've done that uh, since the mid-1980s. Which is wonderful because all of these people put their knowledge and experience together and tailor the plan specifically for you because every case is different. We have some great discussions, and, and it really gives the patient the, the optimal treatment. Each cancer is different. It's unique to that patient, and we treat it that way so they get the best possible care. Yeah. Dr. Jerry Eisenberg is Dr. Marianne's special guest today as you listen to your radio doctor on Doc Radio 1210 WPHT. Thank you so much for tuning in uh, on this Sunday morning as we roll along into the uh, first commercial break. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.com. And back here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT, shout out to everybody consuming Your Radio Doctor on radio.com. Uh, remember, it's Your Radio Doctor on demand where you can rewind, you can fast forward, you can go back to segment one uh, of this morning's show, all of it on yourradio.com. Thank you, Joe. We're talking with Dr. Jerry Eisenberg from Jefferson, colorectal surgeon. And if, Jerry, you find a colon cancer and you're in surgery or, or if you have a clue prior to surgery from CAT scans that it has metastasized or spread, that's going to change your plan uh, that will be a different path than if you have an isolated, straightforward, localized colon cancer, yes? Sure. So if the cancer spread, let's say, to the liver, uh, which is the most common place that it might spread, um, we have to make some decisions. Um, and the first kind of decision tree that we go through is, um, is the tumor bleeding? or is the tumor blocking off the colon? Because if it has, then regardless of the spread of the tumor to the liver, you need to still operate on the colon at that point. However, if it's not bleeding a lot, or it's not blocking off the colon, then you would take a step back, and we would discuss with our oncologic colleagues and see what kind of treatment plan they would want to have for the liver tumor. So often they're going to be given uh, a series of, of chemotherapeutic agents, chemotherapy, to uh, attack both the tumors, 
um, but primarily you're trying to get a response of the tumor uh, in the liver. And sometimes if we see an isolated metastasis or an isolated spread to the liver, to the lung, when you operate, you might consider resecting that small portion of the liver. We know the liver can regenerate. Or you might consider taking that one area of lung. Am I right about that? Yeah, I mean, more commonly we would do it if it's in the liver because we're in the same body cavity sure. within the abdomen. And so we would uh, do simultaneous resection of the colon cancer and we would either uh, cut out that part of the liver or sometimes there's ways to actually uh, burn that part to destroy it. Sometimes you can't cut it out. It's too close to certain blood vessels. Sure. Uh, but definitely we would attack it simultaneously. So I guess that distinguishes uh, a more elective surgery than semi-emergent if somebody's bleeding a lot and you don't want their blood count to drop because that stresses their other organs like heart and kidney. You don't want them to have a heart attack because their blood count is low. You don't want their bowel to be obstructed. Then that's a harder surgery. So that might determine whether you do the laparoscopic or use the the laparoscope to make a small incision near the navel and enter the scope and do the surgery that way, or go ahead and use the more traditional larger incision, which we call open surgery, yes? Sure. I mean, it's quite popular right now to do many of these surgeries laparoscopically. Um, That's probably the most common approach. And it does let us make just a small incision, usually near the belly button, uh, an inch or two type incision where we can do most of our surgery through that and a couple of other uh, small stab wounds for the the instruments that we use. Um, And however, if the tumor is very big or uh, if if the tumor is blocking off the colon, you might not be able to do it laparoscopically, and then you have to make a bigger or a standard incision to do that. Having said that, um, you want to have the technique that your surgeon is most comfortable with. Um, There are advantages to doing the laparoscopy, you have less pain, uh, you get out of the hospital a day earlier, um, but and you don't have a, as long a scar. Uh, however, having said that, both techniques are equal in terms of uh, the, taking out the cancer and curing the cancer. Sure. And the other important feature, and another way of saying that is, patients will say to me, can they do as good of a job if their hands aren't in there? Can they see as well? Yes, yes, you can. Absolutely. Um, and aside from a shorter hospital stay, and a lot of times people say, gosh, I had my surgery or I had my chemo in and out of the hospital, but we do that also to decrease your risk of infection. It's, it's better if you're able to eat and drink and ambulate, that means walk without assistance, to get out of the hospital a little more quickly. But the other thought was it does not change your survival rate. The, the process is equally uh, curative, as you say, right. whether it's open or with the scope. Sure, we've, we've done a, many studies to prove that point, and um, n- now we can easily say that open surgery and laparoscopic surgery are equivalent in terms of cure. And uh, we have another technique that's come into this, which is robotic surgery, and uh, we believe that it's the same in terms of that, but there are ongoing studies to, to prove that point. Mm-hmm. So, Laparoscopy is the procedure of a choice unless somebody's had prior abdominal surgeries and they have scar tissue, which makes it harder to introduce. So, and I want to revisit, you were talking about uh, margins. So if we have a tumor, picture a garden hose and you have a rubber band or something that's constricting the garden hose. 
and imagine that the doctor's going to take about six inches on either side or about a foot all told. In, in uh, surgery talk, we want to make sure that at least 12 lymph nodes have been resected so we can be sure that the nodes closest to the lesion and some even farther away are clear. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, the standard of care now is to take out 12 lymph nodes. And um, we don't, in the during the operation, actually count the lymph nodes at that point because they're hidden by the fat. Uh, so we take out blood vessels and a length of the blood vessel, which usually would include the 12 lymph nodes that we want. And then what happens is, is that the specimen is sent to the pathologist, and over the next few days they look in that fat and they find the lymph nodes and usually they can find at least 12 lymph nodes. But that's what you want to go for because the studies show that if you find those lymph nodes, you have a good chance of determining whether there is any spread. And if they're spread to those lymph nodes, usually the patient will need some chemotherapy after. Exactly. And these are national guidelines that we follow. Uh, evidence-based uh, studies tell us how to, what to do and, and how to do it. 100%, yes. And some of our listeners might say, gee whiz, isn't the sentinel node uh, style a way of studying it? So what's very effective for breast cancer surgeries and melanoma surgeries is the thinking that if the lymph node right next to that breast cancer mass or the melanoma is positive, one and done. We don't have to know whether there is one lymph node or 10 positive lymph nodes. There it is. We have to do chemotherapy or, or additional treatment. With this, it's not as effective. It doesn't work with colon cancer. So Colon cancer didn't read the same book. Exactly. And unfortunately, you have what we call as skip lesions or skip nodes. And so it might skip that first node that you're sampling and go to one even deeper. Number five or six. Right. So you have to take out the 12, and, and that's just the standard way of doing it. And as you say, if you're seeing a surgeon, you're... Don't be worried that laparoscopy versus open, you want to do the most comfortable procedure, the procedure that that particular surgeon is most experienced with. That's correct. I would agree with that. Doc, does the, uh, what does the patient think about all this when you're having a conversation prior to surgery? So obviously the patient is often upset and scared um, because of the diagnosis that they have. Um, so it's always good to bring someone else with you a family member or a friend, because they're a little bit more objective in hearing all the things that I'm telling them. Uh, we try to explain it to them as we're doing now in a simple way that they can can appreciate what's involved with the surgery, what's involved after the surgery, and the risks associated with it as well. Um, but, you know, we understand that it's a scary time for the patient. And that holds really, we always tell our patients too. Uh, brings a family member or friend with them because even if you're Einstein, even if you're a colorectal surgeon getting this advice, you don't hear everything. You're nervous, maybe in denial a little bit, and you really need somebody there to be your sounding board and, and hear some of the details you might miss. I can't stress that enough. It's, it's a really a critical point. And sometimes I have bad news for a patient. We sit down. I, I'm available to answer any question. I direct them to websites they can read about to formulate questions. But I'll, I encourage them to get a second opinion. So, I tell my patients all the time, I'm comfortable in what I'm telling you. You have to be comfortable with exactly. me. Exactly. So if you need to, get a second or a third opinion, mm -hmm. and then I'm happy to take care of you. Just sure. let us know. Yeah. 
is there is there a preference from your side from the medical side in terms of which procedure you ultimately decide to do based on the individual yeah we do base it on certain aspects of of that individual's history if they've had other surgery um their body habitus um we're leaning at this moment in time i would say most people are getting laparoscopic procedures for talking about colon cancer now uh, for for colon cancer um that that's where we've shifted to that may not be true in all parts of the country, but I would say in Philadelphia, that is definitely true. And especially if you're coming to a colorectal surgeon, which obviously is my prejudice, someone who has some extra training in the field. Um, general surgeons also will do this surgery. Not everyone's comfortable with this technique. Many are. Um, uh, so you just have to do a little homework. And so if a patient finds out that they have a new colon cancer and they ask their gastroenterologist or maybe the colorectal surgeon, um, how do they prepare for this surgery? So one of the most important things is they have to stop smoking. If they're a smoker, you must stop smoking at least two weeks before the surgery. It's critical to their aftercare to help them clear their secretions, make sure they don't get pneumonia after the surgery. So that's one thing. Um, We have uh, other instructions for them in terms of cleaning out the bowel, taking uh, oral antibiotics to decrease the bacteria in the colon, uh, things like that. We're now giving them uh, kind of a little bit of an energy drink a few hours before the surgery uh, because the body seems to respond nicely to that um, and try to inform them about what to expect Sure. um, because it it is a a nerve-wracking time. And would you say that if they continue to smoke that they don't heal as well? Absolutely. I guess the other quick point is if they have a lesion that's obstructing or blocking and you find it and you haven't examined their whole colon, within maybe two months post-surgery, we want to repeat the colonoscopy because about 4% of the time there's a second cancer and about 30 to 50% of the time they have polyps. So all on the list that we follow. This is your radio doctor on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT back in a moment. Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie can be enjoyed on Radio.com as well. And you can listen to the show at your convenience. Just go to Radio.com and in the search bar type in Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand. And back here on Your Radio Doctor as we come to you on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Thank you, Joe. A big warm welcome to Pennsylvania State Representative, the Honorable Maria Donatucci, who serves Philadelphia County, the 185th District, who is a true champion of colon cancer prevention and screening. How many years, Maria? Nine years of service so far? Yes, I was elected uh, February of 2011 in a special. Mm -hmm. And how did that come about? It came about because my husband was there 30 years ahead of me. Um, He won his 16th um, election and died a week later from complications of uh, sleep apnea. Oh, my gosh. I did not know that. Yeah. My. Oh, well, our relationship, our joint effort uh, to help fight colon cancer started about five years ago when I was becoming involved with the Blue Lights campaign that we talk about each week. And I thought, gee, I wonder if uh, 
somebody as a state rep or, or a state senator could help me and go to Harrisburg. So I opened up the state rep website and I saw Philadelphia County. I thought, makes sense. It's a Philadelphia project. And I saw Maria Donatucci. I called her office and not her secretary or staff, but she called me back and said, come to my office. I said, I love her already. And then when I got there, we started to chit chat and I said, how did you become interested in uh, fighting colon cancer? And so anyway, my father, like 22, 23 years ago, was diagnosed with colon cancer. Um, back at that time, you didn't just get screened. We didn't have preventive screening. So I used to go online with 31 other people, and we would, you know, exchange information, sure. talk to each other, find out where the trials were, and, and we did this constantly because all of us were touched by colon cancer. Um, sadly, my father did die a few years later. He went into a remission for about a year, then it went to his bones, and he unfortunately passed away in 98, December of 98. Mm. But the 32 of us decided to meet face-to-face in Washington, D.C. We met, and we created the Colon Cancer Alliance, which is now the Colorectal Cancer Alliance, and we met with the drug companies, and we fought for screening, preventative screening, and we fought long and hard. And at the same time, Katie Couric was fighting the the fight for her sure. husband who had passed. Mm-hmm. And that's how I got so involved with, you know, colon cancer and preventing. And thanks to you, the Crusaders, that Colorectal Cancer Alliance is so big now, it's national. And what's interesting is, and kind of sad, Philadelphia has one of the lowest screening rates of any of the major cities in the country. So the CCA, the Colorectal Cancer Alliance, now has what's called the Philly Project, which you've helped to champion, and trying to Focus on Philadelphia, come up with a template that will move the needle, get more people screened, and then hopefully that will be an example for other major cities if we were successful with this. I'm on the board of that as well, and we're both involved in it. Yeah, and, you know, when my husband died and my, I'm not my husband, my dad (laughs) didn't die from that, my Mm -hmm. dad did. Um, When my dad died, I had my husband do the calling cancer awareness every year for March. He started that, and then I'm doing it this year. It's House Resolution 716. Uh, but in my past life, when I adjudicated parking tickets and uh, code violations, I used to have a sign in my office about it, and people would ask me. And I used to convince people to go get scoped. I said, it's not as bad as everybody thinks it is. I did it right after my father died. Sure. I went, and I do it. You know, when my kids get older, I'll have them do it. Um A lot of people came back and told me I saved their lives. Um, As you did. And, you know, once in a while you meet a person and the stars and planets are aligned. And I said, so Representative Donatucci, your dad, anybody else? And she said, my Aunt Marianne. She said, her name's spelled kind of unusually, M-A-R-I-A-N-N-A. I said, I think I know that spelling. And then we knew we were meant to meet each other because that was kind of. And the amazing thing is that she's not a blood relative. And I was so upset because I said I worked so hard trying to save other people's lives from colon cancer. Sure. And you, none of you ever went and got scooped. When she died, all her children went and got scooped. Well, see, and you really encouraged them to do that. Think of the lives that you saved. So Maria stands up in front of all of her colleagues in Harrisburg every year and declares March as Colon Cancer Awareness Month. And you've also helped us with the Blue Lights campaign by doing the same and a second resolution. And that's that's a pretty big job because you have to write the whole 
declaration out and get people's attention. And tell us about that. Well, awareness works. Oh, gosh. You have to get awareness out there. And I say every year when I speak, if it saves even just one life, it's worth it to me. And I have a lot of my colleagues, I get on the soapbox, and I say, you need to get scoped. You're 50, go get scoped. I know where you live. I've seen where you sleep. I'm coming to get you. That's right. I do do that. I will warn you. This is so important because it all starts from a little polyp. And I guess you can explain that, but I do know that. And when I go and get my um, colonoscopy, I'm actually on Twitter or Instagram saying I'm doing it, and the doctor will be like, okay, are you ready? Can we do it now? Yeah, you're but a role model. I, I go that far with it. And, Maria, you've also helped me meet the lieutenant governors, and now we get the state capital in blue for close to the entire month. Yeah, Pennsylvania, yeah. we want to be the Keystone State with the blue lights and just make it a national campaign. And you've also been very kind in introducing me to the heads of the Women's Caucus and the Black Caucus because they are the targets in our population. We've said every week, Women lie behind men, even though the risk is equal. Not good, ladies. Your care is more than just a mammogram. And that extra encouragement that you provide, and the other big area in our population is African-American men, even lower than African-American women in terms of uh, adherence to screening. And again, African-Americans have a 20% higher risk of being diagnosed with colon cancer and a 40% higher risk of dying from it. It's our job. Well, thank you so much. State Representative Maria Donatucci, you're wonderful, you're saving lives, you're a great representative and a great role model. Thank you. And I'm just going to say, everybody, go get scoped. It's March. Do it. Thank you. And we turn back to Dr. Jerry Eisenberg. Last week, we talked about this whole spectrum of colon cancer. You can have a few cancer cells in a polyp and with an advanced endoscopists take that out, but sometimes polyps are bad and they need surgery. Uh, definitely. Um, you know, we wish that all the polyps could be removed with a, with a colonoscope and with special techniques, but um, uh, if they're too big or they already uh, have invasive cancer in it, then you have to turn to surgery and, and remove a part of the colon. And I just didn't want to mislead people by saying, oh, yeah, polyps always come out with a scope because sometimes the cell type is more aggressive and it has started to invade, um, which we can't see. Um, and then the other end of the spectrum is sometimes a person has an isolated colon cancer, but we might have to remove their entire colon. Tell us about that. So um, certain patients will have, they could have more than one cancer or a cancer and a bad polyp in another s- section of the colon, or they could have a special family history of, of colon cancer and that special family history, that subgroup of patients need to have their whole colon out because they're so prone to, to have additional cancers that you need to take the whole colon out. Now, having said taking the whole colon out, it doesn't mean that they're left with a permanent bag. Um, we then take the small intestine, and we hook that to the upper part of the rectum, and they lead a perfectly normal life. Mm-hmm. And so those genetic disorders, one of them is called the Lynch syndrome, and those poor souls, at least we have the knowledge, but they're at risk for other cancers as well, gynecologic, stomach, small intestine, it goes on and on. And their percentage, their likelihood of getting colon cancer is pretty close to 100%. Much, much higher. I'm, there are patients that have um, a, a syndrome called polyposis syndrome. It's another they one. They have mm-hmm. hundreds and hundreds of polyps. 
and they are at a hundred percent chance of getting cancer. So we we have to take their whole colon out. Um, and in the Lynch syndrome, they're at increased risk. And as you said, there are other cancers involved uh, that they're at risk for, including also urologic cancers, the bladder and uh, ureters. So we have to watch them very closely for the additional cancers. So again, that's a small percent of the number of people who get colon cancer. Maybe two, three percent have those really unusual genetic uh, disorders. But this is why it's so important when you're gathered for Thanksgiving or or graduation party. Ask crazy Uncle Ned if you ask the family history. It can make such a big difference in your care and when you start screening and how often. And so. Um, it's really important to tell your siblings, too. If You know, a lot of people say it's kind of private. If you have even polyps, tell your brothers and sisters why they have, they have to get scoped, and it's going to influence your children. Because if your polyps uh, appear in your 40s, then your children are not going to wait till they're 50. Am I right? Absolutely. And it's the first thing that I will talk to patients about when they come to me with the diagnosis of colon cancer. I say, look, I don't want to forget about this got to get your family members screened. It's very important. They're at increased risk because of what you have. So you have to make sure they get checked. And finally, the risks of surgery? So there, you know, unfortunately there are risks to any operation. So I'll give you my little talk that I tell to my patients. So first of all, I let them know that during the operation, the anesthesia doctors are watching their heart and lungs while I'm busy working in their belly. Mm. Then we're also working their blood vessels and organs that can bleed, so they may need a transfusion but most of the time they don't. For this kind of surgery, we're working with the colon, which is dirty, no matter how well you clean it out, so they have a chance of an infection. And then the most serious complication from a surgical standpoint is what we call a leak. The colon's kind of like a pipe. We're cutting out a section of pipe, hooking it together again, and there's about a 5% chance of a leak. So the good news is 95% of the time, you don't leak. So those are pretty good odds. And that's why, as you mentioned earlier, if you're fortunate enough to live in an area where you can get your second opinion and you can find a general surgeon who specializes in colorectal surgery, their experience is broader and they're going to see more unusual cases and they'll be prepared to help you if, if you need extra consideration. Right. There are about 2,004 certified colorectal surgeons in the country. So we're in most major cities. You can find us somewhere. Thank you, Dr. Jerry Eisenberg. We'll be back. Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie is proudly provided by Independence Blue Cross. Dr. Marianne will return, but first, a medical message from one of our partners. And we're back here on a Sunday morning. Thank you so much for tuning in to Your Radio Doctor as we roll to the top of the hour with our final segment, The Sounds of Sinatra, on deck. Thanks, Joe. So, Dr. Jerry Eisenberg from Jefferson, colorectal surgeon. Let's talk about rectal cancer, which is a different topic than colon cancer. In fact, the term colorectal is now being used. We've always used that. We made it easier for the public to say colon cancer. But if you picture that image from high school biology and you look at somebody's abdomen in a drawing and there's several feet of narrow, loopy bowel pictured around the navel, and then your colon, or I should say the large intestine is the larger, the wider bowel. Um, small intestine, you absorb all your calories and fluids to stay hydrated. Large intestine, your waste is packaged and, and shipped out. That's the nicest way to say it. But the large intestine is not interchangeable with the word colon. Colon is the loose 
kind of hanging free part of the large intestine. The rectum is the where the colon empties into that straight last six inches or so with 15 centimeters that is really embedded in your pelvis. So if you think about it, the urinary bladder is in the front of your pelvis. And in women, it's the uterus is behind the bladder followed by the rectum. And in men, it's bladder, prostate, rectum. So if a person has a rectal cancer, it's really burrowed in there with these other organs. And that cancer, if it decides to spread, can knock on the door of the uterus, ovaries. Tell us about that, Dr. Eisenberg. So the rectum is a special topic. And um, sometimes it's treated in a similar way to a colon cancer. But depending upon where it is in the rectum, we often treat it differently. So if someone has a tumor towards the very end of the rectum, close to the anal canal, um, that's very different than a tumor that's in the upper rectum. The upper rectum, where the, where the colon joins in with the rectum, we can treat that similar to a colon cancer. So we will just go in and cut it out. However, a tumor in the mid or lower part of the rectum may require treatment preoperatively before the surgery in order to uh, shrink it down and let us still get good margins and cure uh, the patient. Mm -hmm. And the treatment often that we're talking about here um, traditionally has been radiation along with a little bit of chemo to boost the radiation. We're now entering into a time where we're doing studies to see if giving chemotherapy all up front uh, before any surgery, before any radiation is given, may be the best way to go. So if a patient comes in with a large rectal cancer towards the very end, we will first give them chemotherapy, then they will get radiation with a little bit of chemotherapy, and that'll be for a month or so, and then uh, we will wait a period of two or three or even four months before actually operating on them. So it could be six months before they come to me to get their surgery in order to give them their best shot at cure. And so if somebody has bleeding or obstruction, we don't always have the luxury of time. We want to go in and, and uh, operate, I guess, a little more quickly. Well, sometimes we have to do that, but in a, in a rectal cancer, what may end up happening is we w might have to actually give them a temporary, a temporary colostomy or bag to allow us to give them the treatment in order to get this out again with the intent for cure. Uh, but to give us the time so that the, the waste comes out into the bag while they're getting their chemotherapy and or radiation. Right. And back in the day, we used to call it sandwich therapy because there there was a time when we maybe provide radiation therapy first, as you say, to shrink the tumor, then do the surgery, and then follow with more radiation just to clear any residual invisible tissue in the area. But And now we'd like to give the, the radiation before surgery. We uh we feel that that's a better approach, allows us to shrink the tumor down and also to have less chance of affecting other organs like small intestine that might get stuck if sure. you operate first. Sure. And what we really want listeners to hear today is with the new techniques, even in the 19, late 80s, there, uh, a new technique was the staple gun so that that narrow staple gun could get down and reconnect the two part portions of bowel better than somebody's large hands. And now what we have is robotics, which are 
awesome. Tell us about that, if you would. So, yeah, I mean, our techniques have improved remarkably so that most patients, even with erectile cancer, are not going to live with a permanent bag. So that's, I mean, that's the key point. Um, robotics allows us to get into a pelvis, which is really fixed by the bony structures, mm. um, and allows you to get down there where your hands have some trouble getting down, and even laparoscopy may not be as good. Um, there are studies ongoing right now to tell us whether or not the robot or a laparoscope are equivalent, um, but uh, in my opinion, at this point in time, I think the robot allows us to get a really great dissection. So the, so the beauty of the message is you're much less likely to end up with a colostomy. I think that's one of, you must hear that as one of the biggest fears from your patients. It's one of the first things we talk to them about to, to, to tell them not, not to worry. There's a good chance we're going to be able to save your sphincter and you will not have a permanent bag. And once in a while we have to go a little bit further. We'll, we talked about that earlier sometimes. Um, this, the surgery is more extensive, but probably the best way to avoid surgery at all is to get screened. Ding, ding, ding. We have been saying that, and, and I think people are really starting to open up to that message. And remember, one-third of people over age 50 develop polyps. That's the small growth in your colon that may turn into cancer. One-half of people over age 60 get polyps and know your family history. If you know your family history, that's a close relative. We say first degree, a parent a sibling, even a child that has colon cancer or colon polyps, we may start to start uh, your screening exams at an earlier age. Help us spread the word. It's March, Colon Cancer Awareness Month. Join the Blue Lights campaign. Turn your porch light blue. Send us a photo of your home or your business dressed in blue or you in blue to info at bluelightscampaign.com. We've learned so much today. A special thank you to Dr. Jerry Eisenberg, Jefferson Colorectal Surgery, and to State Representative Maria Donatucci from Philadelphia, who's been a wonderful help with our campaign and spreading the message. And remember to join us next week when you'll hear about the new colon cancer vaccine. And as always, remember most importantly that your health is your wealth. That's going to do it for this week's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Uh, great job by Dr. Jerry Eisenberg, who uh, is also a surgeon in the radio studio. So well done uh, by you. Also, again, as Dr. Marianne said, special thanks to uh, State Rep. Maria Donatucci from the 185th District. We appreciate her being part of the show as well. Until next Sunday, everybody, I'm Joe Krause. See you next time. Thanks for listening to your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Krause at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management.